Glenn's going to be preaching tonight from Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thanks. Hey, do me a favor, because you came out on a night like this, literally, if I wasn't preaching, I'd be right in front of the fire. So well done, stand up and turn to somebody and say, good evening, neighbor, I appreciate you. Get up, do it, come on, here you go. It's all right, I know you're Baptist, but you can do it, it's fine. <clears throat> well done, good job. <clears throat> all right, you can have a seat. Let me give you a little bit of um, kind of a backstory before, before we kind of move into the text that will help explain why this text is, is not only important to me, but it's important to us as a church. In high school, I was in a small group, um, a small group Bible study with a group of guys, and our young life leader asked a question. Ten years later, I'm in another small group. This time, I'm in seminary. And my advisor, who was one of the 
um, professors of theology at the school asked the very same question. So two small groups separated by 10 years, but the same question. And the question was this. Out of all the people that are recorded in the New Testament, those named, those unnamed, those who kind of get the headlines famous, and those who are kind of obscure, who would you most want to identify with? Now, if you're a seminary professor, he said it like this, and this is how he spoke. Who would you most want to emulate? And I was like, wow, that's what it means to be smart. You say emulate. Who would you most want to identify with? So when I was in high school, I said the Apostle Paul. And here's the reason why. Because he was radically converted, I was radically converted. He was a man on mission, I wanted to be a man on mission. Now when I say I was radically converted like Paul, let me clarify that and say I didn't have all the kind of external circumstances surrounding my conversion as he had for his. I wasn't, I wasn't knocked off my horse, I didn't even own a horse. I didn't see a bright light, I didn't hear the audible voice of Jesus, I wasn't blinded for three days. But the same radical conversion that he experienced is the same radical conversion that I experienced. In fact, anybody who comes to faith is radically converted because it is a supernatural work of God's grace from the inside out. See, I can't change me. Even if I wanted to, I can't change me. I don't have that power. You don't have that power. Paul didn't have that power. The Bible says that we're all born with like this uh, heart of stone. You know what that means? It's like we're dead. It's like we're flatlined spiritually, so we're hardened to the things of God. And so God gets in there, and we just sang it earlier, it's amazing grace. What an understatement. It's, it's just like, these are some of the words that we can just apply, but we just, there are not enough words that can really capture just how incredible God's grace is. Grace kind of, it, it'd be like a catalyst. If you're a scientist, it's a catalyst to get a chemical reaction started. It just kind of kicks things off. It ignites it. Now, if you're not so much in the scientific frame, then more in the medical, grace is kind of like a spiritual defibrillator. It just starts to, to shock and create these little pulses of faith. See, God's grace is a gift, but so is faith. And God's grace and faith start to move. Now, all of a sudden, you're... God starts to open up your spiritual eyes. He gets to unplug your spiritually deaf ears, and you start to hear the truth. You start to see Jesus as who he is. You start to really, truly see who you are. You're a sinner who needs forgiveness, and you start to see Jesus as the Savior who can forgive the sins, and all of a sudden, you just say, yes. That's a supernatural work. And then God takes that heart of stone away and he does like a spiritual heart transplant. 
He gives you a heart of flesh, and for the first time in your life, your heart begins to beat for the things of God. You get to see God the way, uh, you get to see God, others, and yourself the way you were always intended to see him. And then, hello, bonus, if that's not enough, I'm gonna give you my Holy Spirit and he's gonna take up residence in this new heart of flesh and he's gonna breathe resurrection power into all the dead spaces and areas and the flawed, broken, false beliefs that you have about God, that you have about others and what you have about yourself. And he begins this work of making you new. That's code for redemption. So, my friends, as Paul was radically converted, so was I. And anybody in this room who says, I stepped into a relationship or crossed the line of faith, I made a commitment, whatever language you want to put around coming to Jesus, you too were radically converted because it took a supernatural work of God to do that, and that by definition is radical. Cool. That's really cool. So I said, identify with him, and I also want to be a man on mission. Now you fast forward 10 years. 10 years later, I'm in this small group at seminary, but this time my answer changed. It was no longer the Apostle Paul. I just want to make sure you don't think that, like, I went cold on Paul. Like, all of a sudden, it was like, you know, Paul, the apostle, been there, done that. No, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was just that I was, kind of, I was kind of on a personal journey of really saying to myself, well, if the driving force for every Christian, for every believer, every follower of Christ, whatever you want to use, if the driving force for those of us who claim the name of Jesus is loving him and really loving him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, then here was my question. What, pray tell, does that look like? I mean, seriously, what does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? And so, enter Luke 7. I went... Her. Her. She's it. If the driving force of my life is to really, truly love Jesus and not give lip service, and not do an intellectual nod, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Lord, and I love him, and he loves me. The first song I ever learned was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Great song but it can't just be a heady intellectual thing. Is my heart truly loving Jesus? And if so, what does that look like? So we get to the text, and I, I kind of thought about this. I'm like, do I have just one point and five subpoints? Or do I have five points? You figure it out. I don't know. All I know is that Jason and most of the people who preach here, they only have three points. I got five. 
but I don't have a quote. So Jason usually got the three point and a quote. Used to be as a Baptist, you had three points and a poem. Now we've upped it a little bit. All right, so there we go. So I've got five things, five expressions that we're going to really take a look at what Luke reveals about her and what it means to really love Jesus. And, and here's where I want to just pause for a second. Start asking yourself just one question to answer that question of what it really truly means because if you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the driving force is no different than mine. So what does that look like for you? And you can begin by asking yourself the question, when was the last time you even told him? Some of you are in some great, wonderful, significant relationships. Family, dating, married, parent, child. If you're sitting there going, gosh, I can't even remember the last time I said I love you to them. What's it say about your heart? Okay, let's go. In verse 38... And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. This unnamed woman who only gets a title, woman of the city. I'm not going there. I don't know exactly what that means. I could speculate, but let's just be honest. Luke gives us enough to know she had a bad reputation. And the first thing that she expresses in her love for Jesus is this. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one or sub point, no matter how you look at it. She was deliberate. She was deliberate. She gets word that Jesus is in town. He's having, he's had a dinner party at a religious leader, a respected religious leader, a Pharisee, which is, it was a Jewish sect of the kind of a very conservative, orthodox kind of branch of Judaism. And he was known. And he invites Jesus. But she deliberately goes. She gets wind of it, and she goes. But before she goes, she goes back to her residence, and she grabs something that is incredibly expensive. In the ESV, it says an alabaster flask of ointment. I hate that word. Don't you hate that word? It's just not. Is there some English words you're like ointment? Yeah. I just don't like to say it. But the NIV is an alabaster jar of perfume. I like that better. However, whatever you want to say, it was estimated that the cost of whatever was contained, this kind of aromatic cream was estimated in the first century to be two years worth of salary. That's not something you just kind of stick in your back pocket or in your backpack and just kind of like casually walk around town with. That's something that's probably very secure in your place of residence. She deliberately gets it 
grabs it, and she goes. She, wa- she goes in unannounced, uninvited, into this dinner party, and what she does is a deliberate act of loving him. What's the point? You don't ever back into loving Jesus. She wasn't just in the neighborhood and just happened to drop in. Every morning, or whenever it is that you would have your time of personal worship, I love to kick my day off. And I've been doing it for nearly 40 years. Deliberately worshiping. Jesus. Deliberate means it's not just something that is on your priority list. Loving Jesus as the driving force of your life is the list. And everything else comes out of that. The second thing. So she comes deliberately. The second thing, she comes humbly. The text tells us she comes and she stands behind Jesus and then she bows before him and she gets low on the floor. If you were at a, if you were at a dinner party and somebody came in and you would just be like, and this happened, you'd be like, awkward. Like seriously. Well, it was really not only awkward, it was socially so unacceptable. Humility is like that. Humility gets you into a place before God that says, I'm relinquishing my place of leadership, my self-reliance, And I'm coming to you and saying, you it. You the one. You are the direct focus. And I'm getting low. And I'm really getting low. Because I want you to get big. We sang, um, we didn't sing it, but it was read to us by Jordan in Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord. Do you know what that means? When you deliberately come before God and when you humbly come expressing your love, you're saying, God, may you get big, you get magnified, and may I get minimized. Without coming to Jesus deliberately and humbly, you know what happens? The opposite. We get really big in our own eyes and God gets really small. So you come, you come deliberately, and you come humbly. And the next one is she comes repentantly. She comes repentantly. Now, there's a whole lot of confusion about that word. So hopefully in the next few moments, I can help you and kind of zero down on what it really means and what it really doesn't mean. She comes repentantly. You can see it in her tears. She, her tears, I guarantee, 
I guarantee that they're mixed with this grief, uh, the grief of kind of her life and her past sinful life. But also there are tears of joy because of who she's in front of and she is in front of the only one that can actually write her past. As Jesus goes on to share this impromptu parable, it's about him canceling the debt. And she's like, you're it. You're the one. So she comes lovingly, deliberately, lovingly, humbly, and lovingly, repentantly. Repentance is doing a 180 degree turn. You've turned your back on God and then you stop and you go, what am I doing? What am I doing? And you do a 180 degree turn and you start coming back to Jesus. But how? What is repentance really? You know, one of the messages that I was toying around with for this evening was comparing Peter and Judas. I'm not, but I'm going to just kind of give you a snapshot because I think both their lives will help us when we compare who they are to help us what real repentance is and what it's not. Judas, when he realized what had done, what he had set in motion, this treachery of selling out Jesus literally and figuratively for 30 pieces of silver, he comes and he goes, what have I done? And he comes and he brings the bag of 30 pieces of silver and he tosses it into the temple from, to the ch- ch- chief priest. He said, and he says... In Matthew chapter 24, I have sinned. See, many people know that Judas betrayed Jesus, but not many people actually know that he confessed it. He confesses it. He says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So is that true confession of repentance? This was the family feud. Survey said, no. He wasn't truly repentant. He was sorry. He was, sh- he, was, he was filled with shameful regret for what he had done. So he was sorry for the offense which, by the way, is a repentance based in performance. Peter, on the other hand, he also betrays Jesus. I know some of you are going to like, no, 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 he denied. No, well, if you deny any and all association of knowing somebody who you loved and you were close to, I would call that, as a friend, betrayal. It just came out in denial. Like, I don't even know the guy. The rooster crows, which Jesus foretold would happen. Luke tells us that Jesus turns and he looks right at Peter. Oh, man, can you imagine that look? I've seen that look. In the depths of my heart, I've seen that look. 
Judas was sorry for what he did. Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. But Peter's repentance was true repentance because, and here, if you can get this, you get repentance. He was filled with sorrowful remorse, not for what he had done only, but for who he hurt. Judas, performance-based. Peter, relational-based. Judas, sorry and regretfully so for the offense. Jesus, for the one, or for Peter, for the one he offended. He wants to be relationally made right. That's why Judas was unconsolable and tragically goes out, gets, gets a rope, and hangs himself from a tree. He cannot be consoled. Peter, there's something in with, within Peter, even in the midst of his, his real betrayal and all of the failure surrounding that, he's grieving the one that he loved and the one that he denied and the one that he hurt. But because he knows Jesus and knows Jesus loves him, he's reassured that somehow doesn't know how it's going to happen yet, but he believes somehow, some way, there will be reconciliation. Because he's in a loving relationship. When you're in a loving relationship with Jesus and you come repentantly, it's not just, I'm sorry for my sinful failures or the offense. That's part of it. But ultimately, if you divorce relationship, you're going to end up being like Judas. And it's going to be a performance that you can't handle, and it will crush you. The weight, the guilt, and the shame crushed Judas. But because... Peter was relationally based. He was like, he's hanging on with hope that the one whom he loved and he believed loved him will make it right. She comes deliberately. She comes humbly. And she comes repentantly because she knows that Jesus is the only one who can put this right. Listen, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you can screw up. You can mess it up. You can even do it royally. Been there. And if you're doing it, particularly with somebody who's very significant to you, you're not just sorry for what's been done. You're sorry for who you've hurt. Amen? I'm just checking to see if you got a pulse. Uh, you know, I, I preach in South Africa. It's, it's like a, when, when you're preaching in South Africa, it's like full contact worship, man. They're all in. So I'm getting adjusted to you kind of just sitting there nice, nice and politely. She also comes gratefully. She comes to deliberately Humbly, repentantly, and gratefully. You can see it in the expression of 
her kissing his feet after she's wet his feet and she takes her hair and thoughtfully, tenderly and thoroughly dries them with her hair. By the way, women didn't let their hair down in public. This is just another evidence of her humility. She doesn't care who's in the room. It's just me and Jesus in this moment. She's grateful, and she begins to kiss his feet. Gratitude. It's not just thanking Jesus for, for what he has done or what he could do, as in, like, forgiving my sin. That's a big thing. You can thank God for that. That is like you have all eternity to continue to thank him for. But she's not only thanking him for what he gives her, she's thanking him for who he is. And I would just want to encourage you, don't just get in your mindset of thankfulness and 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 gratitude to God for all that he's given in terms of his provision. That's wonderful. Please do that. But don't forget to thank him for who he actually is, his attributes, his characteristics, the fact that he is loving, that he is, um, that he is pursuing you, that he pursued me. He didn't hang back. Jesus made the first move. He makes every move. It's just, and so she's filled with gratitude. And the last one, and by the way, it's not like a sequence. I'm just kind of telling you that it's kind of like this, what, what, what you get in this moment. It's like it's an all in. She's doing all of this. Deliberate, humble, grateful, or excuse me, repentant, grateful. And worshipful. And what kind of worship? Extravagant. What kind of worship? Sacrificial. You don't just pour out that alabaster jar of perfume anywhere. You're not going to do that haphazardly. You have motive and intention. Because why? Because Jesus is Jesus is worthy. So many songs that we sang just tonight were just speaking. And the psalm that was read, may praise be ever on my lips. Why? Because he's worthy. There's a, there's a great song out there, and I forget who, who actually was the the original composer of it, but the version that I like and have heard more is Shane and Shane. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And it's just like this flash forward. If you need a text to help you, is Jesus worthy? Just go to Revelation 4 and 5. Um, is he worthy? Heaven thinks so. Supernatural creatures think so. They're getting low. The, all of the elders 
The 24 elders, they bow and take off their crown because they're in the presence of one who is worthy and great. See, all of this are, all of these five things are incredible ways for you to kind of have your own spiritual kind of litmus test of where your heart is. Because here's where I'm going with this. If you if loving Jesus for me and for you and for everybody in this church and anybody, by the way, if you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, I'm so excited that you're here. But let me encourage you in your exploration that when you explore the Christian faith, it's not about a what, it's about a who. And so when you start to explore, please make the center focus of your exploration of the Christian faith, the one who's the object of our faith, Jesus. And I'm pretty sure you're going to get to the place by God's grace and his gift of faith, and he's going to open your eyes, and you're going to see, and you're going to go, he's worthy. Oh, my God. He's worthy. So if loving Jesus is the driving force of our lives, Barrett preached on it brilliantly last week when he talked about family devotion and kind of went right back to Deuteronomy to the Shema and really, or Shema, however you want to say it, Shema, Shema, you know, tomato, tomato. It was what Every Jewish family schooled their kids in. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's the driving force. Because if it's not, then what's the point? So, Jordan, just let you know that we've been like members for like four minutes. And, um, and when you show up at a first Sunday, and I would really, here's a little plug, and, um, and I'm throwing this in for free. They didn't ask me to do it, but I'm just telling you, it's a really great place for you to go and kick the tires. So going to a first Sunday is a place where you get to understand what this church is all about. So you showing up doesn't really commit you, so it's not like you have to like sacrifice your firstborn or something. You just go and you kind of, you sit, you kick the tires, and you kind of find out who they are. And the first thing that you're going to see is a circle. And this circle is really important. And there are three circles. There's an inner circle, intermediate circle, and an outer circle. And there are all these little sections and compartments uh, that just says, this is who we want you to be as an individual believer, and this is who we want to be as a collective community. Then if you move down the journey a little bit, and you decide, like Marion and I and my daughters, we, we're like, this is the church we want to we wanna join. But what does it mean to join a church? It really means... Who am I willing to partner with? It's a gospel partnership. So what we believe it means to join, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, I don't know. But what we believe what it means to join a church is saying we're going to partner with you as a family with our, with our time, talent, and treasure. We're in. We're throwing in. 
What we're expecting on the backside is you're partnering with us to encourage us and to bring the resources. And together, we're combining these resources so that the gospel will be preached inside and outside of this local church. So why? So we can see radical change lives. Great. So you come to the new members thing before, you know, they kind of, it's kind of almost a little bit like rush or I don't know what it is, but it's kind of like the vote on you. You're like, wonder if I'm going to be a pledge or not. And, you know, so you like, hey, we made the cut. Cool. You come to that meeting. There's the circle again. The wheel of fortune's right up in front of you, and you're just like looking at it. There it is. They're going to explain it again. If you want to dive into the mind of Jason Dees and the rest of the leadership, dive into that because they're saying this is it. Now, I'm more motivated with, um, I'm more motivated by food. So I like to see the whole thing as a big pie, and so I'm seeing all this, the inner slices, the intermediate slices, and the outer slices. Right? It's it's just it's all about. This is who we are as a church. This is the life of Pi. That'd be a great name for a movie. So no matter what slice you take out, highlight, drill down on, preach on, and teach on, here's where I'm coming back. If the driving force of our lives, and let's just say you pull out the piece that says, we want to love the city of Atlanta, awesome. I love churches that are not inwardly focused and become holy huddles and a bunch of spiritual navel gazers. I want them to be people who are about loving the people inside, but also loving the city. And whatever way you want to love the city, whatever the expression is, ministry, volunteer opportunities, social justice, whatever it means, if you're not really loving Jesus, what's the point? Because you know what you're going to give? You're going to give you and not Jesus. Let me bring it down to my marriage. If I'm not loving Jesus with the combination of this expression, that we see in this unnamed woman. You know what she's going to get from Glenn? She's going to get Glenn love. You know what Glenn love is like? Oh, it's selfish. It's got strings attached. It's conditional. And sometimes my love is rude. It's not kind. Sometimes... If it's Glenn Love, then I'm going to keep records of wrong. Oh, okay, I got that one listed. She doesn't need Glenn Love. She needs me loving Jesus. And out of that, as I love Jesus, the spillover effect is me loving her in the power and the wonder of this relationship and the fill, the spill out and the profound ripples get to splash all over her and all of the other relationships that I have. And that's what we're to be doing as a community inside and outside of this church. So I'm going to call the band up And I'm going to ask them to come up because when you worship, 
Worship will do two things to you. It will actually reshape your identity. If you ever want a series on the identity of Christ, great, go to Ephesians chapter one. But I can tell you, if you're expressing your love for Jesus deliberately, humbly, repentantly, gratefully, and worshipfully in extravagance and sacrifice, it's gonna reshape your identity. And it's gonna reshape your purpose. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will grant the desires of your heart. Doesn't mean necessarily you're gonna get a Porsche just means when you're delighting, when you're stepping back in inexpressible joy, that's the Hebrew of the word delight and worship. And in this deep, wonderful, expressive characteristics and expressions that we just looked at, not only are you going to shape your identity, it's going to shape your purpose. And your purpose will be right in line with God's will because your desires will become his desires. So I'm going to do something. I didn't ask permission, so this could be the last time that they ever ask me. And you're comfortable to just sit or you're okay to stand. But if you want to just get a little bit low tonight let me pray so you can go to your knees you might not be physically able to do that that's fine you can stand or you can sit or you can kneel it's okay there's no judgment let's go to the Lord and you may not have enough room Heavenly Father This whole thing began with you, by you sending your beloved son. And Jesus, you came and you showed the full extent of your love on that cross. And your supernatural grace and the gift of faith helped our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be softened to where we said yes. And we simply right here, right now, want to love you back. So we deliberately are coming to you. We are humbly coming before you. We know that you know everything about our past and present. You even know our future. And you know the offenses and the ways that we have grieved you, and we want to make it right with you. And we thank you that you can cancel our debt. It's no more. So we worship you, a worthy Savior, and Lord of Lords, and Prince of Peace, and King of Kings, and the list goes on. So we offer ourselves, as Paul said, as living sacrifices and say, have your way with us. Thank you, Jesus.
Jesus for this time. And all God's people said, Amen.